0: The ABA is joining with tropical birding for the first time for an extraordinary adventure in Thailand in 2019. This is Thailand birding with a camera, so if you are a photographer that likes birds or a birder who likes to take a few photos, this is a trip with you in mind, and there are no shortage of incredible photo subjects in Southeast Asia, stuff like sunbirds, pitta, incredible pheasants, spoon-billed sandpiper, some of the coolest looking birds on the planet. Plus, mammals, culture, and amazing food with ABA friends, this is setting up to be a really exceptional time. Have I interested you yet? Is your mouth watering for bird photography and the real deal pad thai? Get more information at aba.org travel. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am your host, Nate Swick, and I read a cool thing on National Audubon's website the other day about sports stadium construction migratory birds at lisa opar over at audubon had a very neat and comprehensive piece on the differing strategies between two professional sports franchises in minnesota sort of hit on that intersection of birds and sports that i as a as a sporting fan enjoy from time to time so if you cast your mind back a few years you may recall that the minnesota vikings the nfl team the Minneapolis built a brand new stadium and they put a lot of glass around the exterior. This obviously a very, very bad thing for migratory birds, Audubon and many other organizations. I think ABC, I think we said something about it. We're basically saying, you know, this is, this is a bad idea. Please don't do this. The city council, the Minneapolis city council said we would like you to change this part of the plan It's a marginal increase in the budget, and when you're talking about a billion-dollar stadium, it really is marginal, like 1% increase marginal, to replace the glass with bird-friendly glass with the, the etchings on it that prevents bird strikes. Long story short, they did not, and birds have been smacking into the glass regularly since the thing opened. So, frustrating. Anyway, along comes Minnesota FC, the Major League Soccer franchise that is building a new stadium in St. Paul, and they have actually taken a very different approach. The stadium has glass, very modern looking, very popular these days, but that glass is the bird-friendly fritted glass, the stuff with the little etchings in it, and they've worked it into the design of the stadium. It looks it looks sharp, and birds will likely not be smacking into it, at least not at the rate that they are at the Vikings stadium. So this was a very conscious decision, It helped along by the fact, of course, that the team is actually named after a bird. They're the loons. They have a stylized loon on the crest. It's very cool. I'm already sort of partial to soccer teams with birds on the crest. There's actually a lot of very, very neat ones all around the world. Major League Soccer really seems to be leaning into this bird stuff lately. It's actually not the only bird-themed soccer news this fall. Miami is getting an expansion franchise, and they released their logo and the associated design aspects uh, a couple months ago. And uh, th- this is actually eating dangerously into my another obsession of mine, which is actually sport logo design. Um, I won't bore you too much about this. You can listen, if you want, to my other podcast, The Great Crested Fly Catcher. The last episode is a 90 minute rant about how no bird teams made the World Series and, uh, and a preview of the upcoming Cardiff City, Brighton and Hove, Albion All Birdcrest Derby. I feel like that's a joke only a few people are going to get. It took a long time to get there, so I'm going to stick with it. Miami's new logo has a bird on it. It's a perfect bird for South Florida. It's stylized. Great white heron. They even got the light-colored legs right on the crest. It's it's very nicely done. You should check it out if you have access to the Google. Anyway, the the takeaway here is that if you are a sports fan and you like birds, you, you can do worse than Major League Soccer these days. On the show today, Mark Kramer and Eliana Ardila. Ardila are traveling the continent by Volkswagen bus. They are documenting it all on social media. They're also here with me to talk all about their journey and the birds and the birders that they've met along the way. All that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your rare bird focus for the last part of October 2018. The weirdest bird of the period came from Florida. This is the second episode in a row where I can say that. You may recall that last time out, we talked about the double-toothed kite that was seen there, the ABA second. At the same time the kite was making waves, a European robin was also seen, this time in Broward County. That may actually be a more unusual bird than the kite, though it admittedly a bit less dramatic than a raptor. European robin was recently accepted to the ABA checklist based on a record from Pennsylvania, Committee members felt that it was plausible that a Euro robin could make it over to North America. I recall that bird being seen sort of in the midst of a significant movement of European robins in Iceland. Uh, This would be the second record, this Florida record. Uh, I don't know what the current situation is regarding vagrancy of this species within Europe. Um, If there's a similar movement going on as there was before, who knows? Um, It's worth mentioning, at very least, would be a first record pending acceptance. A couple potential firsts from British Columbia, including an old world Embariza bunting, Embariza bunting, I'm not exactly sure how that one goes, uh, found in Victoria that is tentatively being called a pine bunting. This would be a provincial first, and the first outside of Alaska, where there are four previous records. The problem is that this bird, while pretty well photographed, is a young individual, and there are a great many East Asian Embarizids, Emberizids that are you know quite similar very difficult to identify pine bunting is one of them as you probably got from all my qualifications so the identity of this bird is still in doubt and still being discussed so we'll see if we can get an identification on it or or not but bc did have a bird that was a little easier to identify a vermilion flycatcher was seen in white rock no confusing that one even though it was a female type much more cut and dried provincial first for bc Also, in vagrant flycatcher news, a thick-billed kingbird was found in North Dakota. That's Oliver County, North Dakota, state first there. Of the ABA area kingbirds, thick-billed is definitely the one least inclined to vagrancy, at least in terms of, of number of records. But Ontario did have a record in 2012, so they can up and move around from time to time. In any case, that's a great bird and a great opportunity to mention North Dakota here. I don't get to do that too often. Ohio also had a first record of a vagrant kingbird recently, a gray kingbird in Clark County. This has been a noteworthy year for gray kingbirds on the East Coast, but one so far inland as Ohio is definitely pretty extraordinary. We're also starting to see pink-footed and barnacle geese in the Northeast, currently one of each in Newfoundland and Nova Scotia, respectively. That seems to be where it starts, Uh, so look out, Maritime Canada and New England. They are on their way. Uh, this was a quick roundup of the notable rarities in the ABA area for this period. For all your rare bird needs, check out the ABA blog every Friday morning at blog.aba.org. You can also join our Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash ABA Rare, or you can follow the rarity Twitter feed at ABA Bird Alert. It's the dream of many birders to travel the U.S. and Canada by car for one entire year, taking in as much of the continent's birds as you can along the way. It is the reality for Mark Kramer and Eliana Ardila Ardila, the birding by bus duo. They spent the whole of 2018 crossing the country in their Volkswagen Westphalia and documenting the whole thing on social media to the delight of those who... Those of us who get to follow along, they are joining me now from a stop at ABA headquarters in Delaware City, though by the time this podcast publishes, they will have moved on like they do. Uh, thanks for allowing me to catch up with you. Mark and Eliana, welcome. Hi, Nate.
1: Hi. Ma- Hi, thank you so much for having us.
0: Sure. Where did this idea, this this kind of twist on the big year come from? Did the, did the idea come first or did the bus come first?
1: So the bus actually came first. Uh, we actually bought the bus 10 years ago. When we did a similar trip, eight months across the United States. Uh, But back then we were just focusing on everything, nature, hiking, just doing different things. This time is focused on birding. So it's a specific birding trip. And uh, last year when Mark and I got engaged, um, we had to start thinking about the wedding and where is the wedding going to happen and when we realized how much money a wedding costs, we <laughs> decided that, hmm, maybe instead of spending all that money on a wedding, why don't we go chase birds and uh, and get married in our favorite place, which is Alaska?
0: Mm-hmm. That is sort of what changed between your first your tour in 2008 and now. Um, did you learn anything in that first trip that has made this current one more successful? I think we definitely learned secrets of living on the road for a long period of time. We
2: made a lot of mistakes in terms of having the right gear and being able to stay warm and, um, you know, just sort of how to pack efficiently. So I think we got the, the camping routine down pretty well in 2008. And um, it definitely wet our appetites for more traveling and more exploring of the U.S. and Canada.
1: And now, Mark is also an expert at fixing the bus. Which <laughs> ten years ago, we had no clue how to even that's, jump. That's
2: true. When we first bought the Volkswagen, I knew zero about auto mechanics. Um, and then over the last ten years, by necessity more or less, because on a 40-year-old car, just right. about everything breaks at one point or another.
0: And those older Volkswagens are kind of notorious for that, too. Yeah, yeah. I
2: mean, they're, they're known to be hardy vehicles that you can work on yourselves and, um, and keep them going for a very long time, but they're also notorious for, you know, breakdowns and, uh, other mechanical challenges. So I I think we've definitely learned a lot about, um, servicing the vehicle and, um, doing our own road maintenance and, uh, you know, just sort of getting the vehicle to make it 25,000 miles around the country, you know, without any
0: major, uh, gaps in, in travel. (laughs) <laughs> is, is it a good birding car? You know, I, I notice a lot of birders <laughs> drive, you know, Subarus or Priuses, Priya, I guess. But, you know, the 78 Volkswagen Westphalia, is, is it good? Does it work well for birding?
2: It, you know, it has its pros and cons. Um, it's definitely great for uh, being able to camp just about anywhere. Right. You know, you can roll yeah. up into a parking spot or a campsite, pop up the top where we sleep, and uh, you basically got your tent set up in 30 seconds. You know, it's like having a tent on top of your car and we've got a kitchen and we've got, um, you know, basically like our tiny house with us at all times. So it's great for getting to remote locations and for being able to go from one location to another um, and go for long periods of time. On the downside, it's a bit on the noisy side and uh, (laughs) there's like a lot of vibration when you're idling. So, you know, you're trying to look through your binoculars or take a photo and you've got this vibration factor that... Uh-huh. Um, I think with modern cars, you don't have that quite as much.
1: Yeah, and also um, the bus, her name is Valentina, by the way. Valentina, um, right. Yeah, we got her on Valentine's Day, so she, that's how she got the bus. <laughs> right, uh, but yeah. anyways, with Valentina, it's a six-shift car. So you have to always like, you know, like you're trying to go and stop, go and stop. And with a six-shift, it makes it a lot harder. So it can be a difficult at times because of that. But I will say general, it is a good burning vehicle because... The amount of people that approach us and ask us, what are you doing? And and people seem to help you more when they see you traveling in this vehicle. Not exactly sure why, but everybody wants to help (laughs) you one way or the other.
0: Everyone likes those Volkswagens. There's always something really appealing about them.
1: For sure. All day long, we get the peace sign. uh, Somebody (laughs) honks, waves, comes and tells us how they used to have one or how they wish they had one. So it's definitely made us new friends.
0: Have you been able to sort of uh, spread the I don't know spread the gospel of birding to people who might otherwise not you know be interested in what you're doing?
1: Oh, for sure, definitely. Um, just even yesterday, somebody sent us a message through Facebook and said, "Thank you so much for opening the doors to an- another world that I had never even knew existed." It was somebody that we randomly met in Cape May, New Jersey, at the birding festival, and um, she's not a birder. But she was interested in what we were doing, approached us, and because of the bus and because of what we were doing, um, she's now interested in birds and she wants to go see what's out there in her, in her own city.
0: Oh, that's really cool. Uh, you know, you've documented so much of this trip in, in really clever posts of Facebook and Instagram. You, you, just, you just mentioned it. Has it been satisfying to sort of interact with so many people in these sort of small but, you know, actually sort of meaningful ways? Yeah, social
2: media has definitely connected us to a lot more people than we ever would have just met in person on the road. Um, we've got some, you know, I, I could sort of, we, we've got people from all walks of life, but we, in particular, we have, um, you know, the birder crowd that follows us. Mm-hmm. We've got a strong following of Volkswagen enthusiasts that follow us. We've got people that are generally interested in nature and travel and the outdoors that follow us. And then, you know, kind of a smattering of of all walks of life. So it's definitely connected us to a lot of people.
1: Yeah, that's for sure. And, um, and you kn- for us that we have done similar trips twice and then 10 years ago, there wasn't really social media. Right. Just, we were just right. starting to use Facebook. Um, Instagram didn't exist back then. And, uh, from then to now it's definitely different because now we have been able to meet a lot, make it more friends, uh, we've gotten help in many ways by people that found us through social media. By They offered us either a place to park the bus or invited us over for dinner or took us birding or helped us with the Volkswagen. So because of social media, we've been able to reach out more and get more help or make new friends or teach the world on so many different things that we're doing it could either be by birding or living in a small space or living the van life so definitely has helped a lot
0: yeah I've, I've spoken to a lot of people who have done kind of tradition more traditional big years, kind of very chase heavy big years, and they you always have so much to say about the birding community, especially how social media connects them with the, with the birding community and how you know, the people they meet are such a positive influence on the experience. Your year is uh, almost as much about people as it is about birds. Have, have you learned anything about the birding community, as it, you know, either locally or, or nationally, uh, that has surprised you?
1: Um, one thing that comes to mind right now is our family tends to tell us, be careful out there. Be careful where you go. Be careful who you talk to. Who's that stranger that you just decided to <laughs> park your bus on their house? And one thing we have learned or we were reassured was how amazing people really are. And uh, and the birding community has gone above and beyond for us. I mean, a couple of days ago when we were at KMA Birding Festival, Um, there was someone that, that knew that we were trying to find this specific bird and he spent his whole day just taking us around, trying to find the seaside, um, sparrow and and other, um, sparrows. And, uh, just when they know that you need something or that you're struggling with something, everyone wants to lend you a hand. And it's just amazing how many, how much, how incredible people are. That to me has been what I've learned so much. Yeah,
2: we've definitely, you know, had a lot of cheering on by the birding community and they definitely have reached out to us in terms of providing help in finding, you know, locating hard to find birds or providing us with a place to stay or a meal or, you know, any kind of logistical help along the way. We've definitely felt a strong connection to the birding community and to people in
0: general.
1: Yeah, it's been, it's been really, really amazing.
0: It always amazes me the extent to which people feel almost so invested in these big years that are kind of run online or or in a sort of a public way. You know, they they want to feel part of it as well. It's 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 really cool. Yeah, that's for sure. Is there any one any experiences that you've had this year that have really stuck with you, made you think, wow, you know, this is this is why we're doing this? Um, for me,
2: you know, Alaska was definitely a huge highlight in many ways. Not just for the birds, but also we got we got married there, so that you know contributed to its big yearness. Uh, but yeah, Alaska definitely stands out in particular, the journey to some of the remote Alaskan outposts, um, Adak Island and Attu Island, you know, it was just kind of an incredible, extreme birding journey and, you know, rough conditions at sea and difficult weather. But the rewards were, were pretty awesome finding, um, you know, lots of uh, Asian vagrants and spectacular pelagic birds out at sea. Um, for me, I think, um, the journey to Attu and also to St. Lawrence Island were particularly memorable and and awesome.
0: Where, where did you
2: Where did you start this year? You're from Miami, correct? Yeah, yeah. so we're from miami. we um we left we left home in March. We actually, you know, the first two months of the year, we spent prepping the vehicle. There was a lot of work to be done, a lot of repairs, a lot of maintenance to get it road ready for such a long journey. So we spent literally two months every day working. Under the bus, in the bus, painting and you know, sanding and brakes and CV joints, engine, fuel hose, just about you know everything needed maintenance. But we uh, we started in Miami. We went south across the U.S.-Mexico border, pretty much. You know, we stayed in um, the Gulf Coast, South Texas, Southern New Mexico, Southern Arizona. We had plans to head all all the way to California and then up the West Coast, but we. We needed to get to Alaska by a certain time, by mm-hmm. the beginning of May. And um, time, in the interest of time, we wound up cutting out most of California. So, you know, we missed some birds there. But we had a pretty pretty cool journey um, north from Tucson. We shot up through um, Nevada, California, Oregon, Washington, and then the uh, long journey through British Columbia and the Yukon up into Alaska. So that was the route, the first half, I would say.
0: So you you took the bus up up that route the the land route to Alaska that is that is ambitious.
2: Yeah, yeah. No, that was definitely, you know, that was another one of the fun aspects of this yeah. this trip is um, you know, not just the birding and getting married but also taking this vintage 40-year-old vehicle across the country, you know, something that many people said we would never be able to accomplish that the vehicle would never make it, that you know, we would fail but we uh,
1: proved them wrong. We
0: proved them wrong. Yeah. yeah, there and back again. Yeah,
1: I remember taking a video at the border um, when we got to Alaska, and um, you can see in this video just how happy we were. I think <laughs> I had a smile from ear to ear. And, uh, yeah, we just talked about everything that we had done up to that point, how many miles we had um, covered, how many species we had seen, and, and just... Thinking back to that day and how happy we were that we had finally made it all the way there. You know, it's when you look at a map and you see Miami, all the and Miami, and then you see Alaska. It's it's so far, it's so and I far, can't believe yeah. we did that. You know, it's how yeah. crazy is that? And uh, we all and we also did it in a month that wasn't. Ideal, we did it in April, so it was still cold. Um, <laughs> the good thing is that the roads had been cleared from the snow, so that, that part was good, but it was pretty cold. We had some nights that we froze. Uh, one night we got to um, 16 degrees, so we were a bit miserable that night.
0: <laughs> I'll bet, yeah. What is the what is the birding like in that part of the continent? That That is not a place where many people have spent a lot of time.
2: Yeah, you know, we were... We, we hit British Columbia and the Yukon during spring migration in part. So we had tremendous migration of sandhill cranes and uh, there, uh, tons of waterfowl. I mean, there was yeah, just, yeah, just yeah. along that road, you know, looking in any pond or, or body of water, it was always full of waterfowl. Um, I don't think we had a whole lot passerine-wise on that route at that time. Maybe we were a little early for passerines, but um, it was, you know, busy with certain certain species so we definitely made a number of stops going up
1: now i was going to say that the sandhill migration to me was the most spectacular thing just seeing the thousands and thousands of sandhill and just just seeing them fly and um we got to an area of alaska um mark what was the name of that little town hyder hyder yeah we got to hyder alaska in the middle of nowhere if you look in the map, and. they ha- The Sun Hill had just arrived there and were just there for a few hours and then we saw them take off and That was absolutely spectacular what a what a view We just couldn't take it all in. It was just that stunning to see.
0: Have you kept to a route and a schedule that you planned ahead of time or or are you sort of able to you know take off and do some different things if a if a cool opportunity comes up?
2: We have a very loosely planned route for the the whole journey. Um, I mean, we definitely had selected um, hot spots and highlights that we wanted to cover, but we've literally been winging it the whole way. We can, you know, <laughs> stay in one place a little bit longer if we really like it, or we can move through uh, an area if we're, you know, not finding birds or, or just, you know, aren't in love with an area. So it's definitely loosely planned. Um, we also take suggestions from People along the way, actually, one of the things that we've done is use our social media to post our expected route, but then people throw out, you know, other suggestions and alternatives for us to consider like, hey, you know, I I suggest you check out this birding spot. It's really great. So we'll, you know, we'll detour or we'll change the route based on input from other
0: people. Have you found any sort of diamonds in the rough, I guess, places that you didn't expect to find good birding that you ended up having a, you know, an amazing day? Yeah, I can think of one place
2: in the middle of Saskatchewan, Canada. It was a little town called Chaplin, and it was um, it was a it had some salt deposits of some sort, and uh, there were these great salt flats and and like bodies of shallow water that were just loaded with shorebirds in like late July. So I, you don't really think about this massive shorebird migration in the middle of Saskatchewan, but it was pretty impressive. I mean, we got all kinds of Um, great shorebirds there. I think we picked up our year bared sandpiper and, uh, it was very unexpected and, and I would love to go back there actually.
1: Yeah, that would be amazing.
0: Yeah. That's gotta be one of the more interesting aspects of this, this year. And I think you know, that, that maybe someone who's doing a, a big year where they're flying all over the place sort of misses that. And Dorian Anderson, who did the biking big year a few years ago, sort of had similar situations where he kind of come across these amazing opportunities or really cool experiences that you absolutely don't expect at all. I mean, that's got to be really satisfying.
2: Yeah, yeah. Those surprises make it, make it great.
1: Yeah. One thing that has been for us very unique in this space special big year, um, I will call it is that for us, we can actually sit down and enjoy the birds more, you know, like we Mm -hmm. we get to a location and, and we see the species and we don't just go ahead and move on. We actually stay there and we can photograph it or, or learn more from its behavior or, or learn on why is it a seaside sparrow versus a Nelson sparrow. Um, so definitely like we were just talking about that this morning that we can actually sit down and enjoy the birds instead of feeling so rushed as I think other big year birders might feel.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of the name of the game in in some ways. Yeah. Um, so what, what has been uh, the favorite thing you've seen so far? Oof. Aside from Alaska, I guess you did sort of answer that question uh, hey, earlier. You put uh, it
1: difficult because first, okay, which is your favorite place? And then you can't say Alaska. You made it hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All
0: right.
1: uh, one place that stood up for me a lot that I was not expecting its beauty was um, it was west uh, of the... Um, the valley? Dead uh, valley, yes.
0: And oh, okay. um, yeah. Alabama
1: Hills. And the, the views were just stunning. We were in the middle of this campground that wasn't even a campground. You just literally found a place, to park, and camp there. Um, and I remember having so much fun that night doing uh, night photography with Valentina and, uh, and the stars and everything. To me, that was—anytime somebody asked me that question, when it's not Alaska, that comes to mind, the Alabama Hills and California.
0: Oh, that's neat. So,
2: where are you uh, off to next? So, from Delaware, I think we're headed back into Maryland, maybe to Blackwater National Wildlife Refuge. And from there, we're heading west through Washington, D.C., Virginia. I think we're going to hit Shenandoah National Park, then into West Virginia. And from there, it's, again, pretty loosely planned. I know we're going down. We're going south. (laughs) Uh, We've got about six weeks left to get back to Miami. And then once we're home in Miami, we have a number of South Florida birds we need to actually still pick up for the year. So hopefully that'll get us another 20 or 30 species. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We plan on participating on um, the Christmas bird counts in Miami and also the Keys. Uh, and, uh, we hope to, that we will be participating in the Christmas bird count at Dry Tortugas National Park. So we will be driving the bus down to Key West. So we literally will, would have gone from extreme Key West all the way to Alaska.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Corner to corner. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that sounds great. Mark Kramer and Eliana ardila Odila are birding by bus across the U.S. and Canada. You can follow along with them on Facebook and Instagram. They're birding by bus at both. Uh, Thanks for slowing down long enough for me to catch up with you. Uh, Good luck with the rest of your year. Thanks for having us, Nate.
1: Thank you so much.
0: American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best thing you can do to support it is to join the ABA. We would love to have you as a member. We are all about making your birding experience as good as it can be. There are a lot of free resources, publications, young birder programs, events, and more. Get more information at aba.org/slash join special shout out to james meigs of newton massachusetts brianie angel of seattle washington former guest brianie angel julia mcgill of alexandria virginia linda and charles lee of Louisville, colorado jane holloway of st petersburg florida and melissa milner of waltham massachusetts all of whom joined the aba recently and noted the podcast as a reason thank you so much welcome to the aba Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He's launching a new podcast that is an insider's look at Scandinavian national team hockey. It's called the Iceland Goal. The ethical production is by John Lowry. His new podcast is meant to be a place for those in the barrel-making industry to swap tools and supplies. It's called the Cooper's Hawk. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese. They're working on a new podcast aimed at prison inmates who really like Latin dancing, but generally, find it too dramatic. I know it sounds like a very specific audience, but they think there's something there. Uh, it's called the Plain Cha Cha Lockup. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com/birders, and on Twitter at aba. This podcast has been pretty successful, but we always hear that the subject matter is too broad. Can you narrow it down to appeal to birders in the United States who have had their optical equipment stolen? And we can we aim to please. So coming soon on ABA Podcasts, the American Rob Ben. Question and comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nitswick. Thanks for listening. Till next time.